So in the reading corner today, I'm really delighted to be welcoming Ian Livingstone. He's co-founder of the Games Workshop and one of the authors of the Fighting Fantasy series. Who can believe that it's 40 years since the publication of The Warlock of Firetop Mountain? Well, two new books are published in this anniversary year, including Ian's book, Shadow of the Giants. So I'm really thrilled to be welcoming you uh, today, Ian. And I'm going to take you back, first of all, I think, uh, to that very first book, uh, Warlock of Firetop Mountain. And knowing your background from the Games Workshop and RPG type of games, you tend to think of those as being very social activities. And people often think of books as being essentially solitary so why did that seem to be a good idea to you to move from game playing into book writing? Well, we started Games Workshop in 1975. We became distributors of Dungeons & Dragons. And Dungeons & Dragons, for those who don't know, is a role-playing game in which one person desires a labyrinth of rooms and passageways, populates them with monsters and treasure in a kind of Tolkien-esque world. And the other players take on roles of heroes, wizards and fighters. And through conversation explore the dungeons, finding treasure and slaying the monsters. So it's effectively theatre on the fly. And it's a, a very immersive, interactive experience, group play, group fun. And games can go on forever and people get very affectionately connected to their alter egos and they can survive you know, for many years. And knowing the the success and the kind of emotional connection that role-playing games have with people, Steve and I thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we somewhere could distill the essence of a role-playing game into book format? So take the, the elements of role-play, turn it into a branching narrative, and add a simple gaming system, and hey presto, you have an interactive game book. And that was the idea that we proposed to Penguin Books at uh, our Games Day that we ran in 1979 as part of the Games Workshop activities. And Geraldine Cook, who was the editor, was absolutely enamoured by this idea because she discussed with us originally about writing a book about role-playing games. And we said, why don't we give you a book that allows you to experience a role-playing game? And that's how she thought was a great idea. But it took her nearly a year to convince the senior management of Penguin Books that an interactive book had any relevance in a world of traditional linear books. Mm. But, of course, once children started reading them, they they became obsessed with them because, as, as, you, as we all know, a, a book in its linear format is reading about somebody else's exploits and adventures. In a fighting fantasy game book, you, the reader, are the hero, and you're empowered through choice. The agency you're given allows them to feel as though they were actually there. They were actually making decisions. They were actually going on that adventure. They were slaying the monsters themselves, finding the treasure. And they always talk about it in the I form. I, I was running away from these goblins, and I fell down the pit onto these poison spikes, and but I survived, and drank a potion of strength and I lived to fight another day. And so it's a very personal experience fighting fantasy as opposed to being a detached reading a, a linear book. There's quite a lot in what you've said that I'd like to unpick a little bit more. And the first one is the voice that you found. Um, so it is first person and it is present tense, whereas a traditional narrative 
a fairy tale or Tolkien would be written in the third person and the past tense. Now, was that just intuitive and you you went straight to that voice or was there a little bit of thinking through how to write that? No, we wanted to do it straight away from, from that that tense because it's, it's like playing a role-playing game. You were saying you are walking down a corridor after 20 metres on the left, there is a keeps out sign written in blood on a doorway. You look further down the corridor, there's a there's a, a misty cloud and a skeletal figure is emerging from that cloud. What do you want to do? So it's 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 real-time decision-making for the reader. And mm-hmm. so they have that dilemma, should I open this door or should I face the oncoming skeletal figure and try and overcome it? Mm-hmm. But that was all that excitement of, through choice. And mm-hmm. so it had to be in, effectively in the present tense. There are always parameters around it, though, aren't there? It, it, you know, it can't be unlimited. So when we get to a book like Fighting Fantasy, there is the one true way. <laughs> Tell yeah. us a bit about the one true way. <laughs> well, I, I do my best to hide the one true way. <laughs> the, the pleasure I get from writing in Fighting Fantasy game books is to try and lure people to their doom. You know, I want them to fall onto the poison spikes. I want them to get roasted by a fire-breathing dragon. So I try and give the rose petal path indication to uh, to end with some rather unpleasant demise. But um, you start off, of course, with uh, like in Shadow of the Giants, um, you're given a quest uh, and then you have to think, how am I going to solve this quest? And it's an iterative process of decision-making and, and dilemmas to make. But the, the important thing is that every choice should have a consequence it's really important that decision A has to have a different outcome to decision B. And so as you start writing, the story starts to branch out, but it's essential because it's limited, as you say, limited in book format, that you bring them, the readers back to certain node points so they can receive really important information to allow them to succeed. But then, of course, uh, I want people to avoid critical information sometimes because I want them to fail. <laughs> and so, you know, if you if you fail to find the key in one room, you won't be able to open a door later on in the adventure. So people get frustrated and come back and start again. Mm. But I think that frustration only adds to the excitement and the determination to want to succeed. It seems to me this is a really complex writing process can you tell us something about the mechanics of putting a book like this together it is it is really, it's quite a nightmare to write them it is very complex because you're writing multiple story paths at once um and you have to keep an absolute true record of what every decision point means the consequence of those so the only way you can do that is by you have in my case a list of 400 numbers which you're going to allocate as the adventure unfolds. So I write a, create a, a map, a flow chart, like a computer flow chart. So starting at one, the decisions give you three choices. So you make a, a note on the map that decision one takes to 77, two takes to 233, and choice three takes to 312. And so you draw that on, you write what happens at those areas. And so and then as the adventure keeps going, you've got this ever-unfolding map. And sometimes I think, oh, well, I need a key now because I've got a room. So I have to go back to an earlier part of the adventure to put the key in a place where they might find it. 
And if they chose a different route, they wouldn't find it. So there's a lot of back and to, back and to, back and to, because you're having to add content later on in places that was at the beginning of the adventure, so to allow you to succeed later on. At the same time, you're having to keep, uh, make sure that there is a one true way, that it's actually possible to do it. You have to keep a record of the difficulty level so it's not too hard or impossible to succeed because it is a game so you have to do and do a kind of statistical evaluation of average dice rolls if you will succeed or not and of course some people cheat but we can talk about that later (laughs) and then there's another way of keeping the the balance of of the economy effectively because we put you find gold and and magic items so you want to make sure that people don't run out of money. So if they're suddenly charged, you know, ten gold pieces for a sword at some point, that it's able to have those ten gold pieces in the first place. So there's wow. an awful lot of consideration, and then ultimately is a compelling storyline, overarching storyline to make you want to continue to achieve your final goal, whatever that might be. In the case of Shadow of the Giants, to uh, slay the the giant, the Iron Giants that are terrorizing and trying to flatten the the world of Valencia. Tell us about um, Shadow uh, of the Giants, which is your most recent book. And it starts, uh, I love a book that has a map at the beginning. Yeah, I think everyone likes a map. And I think people like, it's just something very compelling about looking at maps. Uh, so over over these 40 years that we've been writing them, we've obviously built up a world. The, the, the world's called Titan. And, and most of my adventures on this continent of Alansia. So Firetop Mountain is there. Um, Forest of Doom is situated there. Port Black Sand, which features in City of Thieves, is there. People like going to this sort of awful port where all these thieves and vagabonds and pirates live. It's a different type of adventure. So this world that's being created is a kind of a backdrop, contextual hub for, for new adventures to take place. So I can reference earlier books and creatures and characters and, and give them a sort of fleeting mention in, in, in the new book. So Show the Giants... Um, Harking back to the 40th anniversary of Firetop Mountain, you start off going to Firetop Mountain, and the reader might think we're going back to the original place to find some lost treasure. But you learn quite early on that um, you find an item, which I won't say right now, but that results in releasing these giants that suddenly grow from the, this little small statuette to these enormous building high giants made of iron who are controlled by by evil magic with a mission to destroy all the land that's been being created thus far and it's your job to find the person who can help you uh, who is the only person who knows how to destroy the iron giants so you have to journey to this town called hamlin nothing to do with pied piper and um, find this person who will then tell you what you need and then you have to spend the rest of the adventure finding those items and you meet a, a character as well and who is going to help you along that journey and you you have these discussions with this non-player character who, who helps you on this mission mm-hmm. now for me if i read something like this or i play a game the joy is in solving that you know uh, if if i were to cheat i would be cheating myself I, I genuinely feel i would be cheating myself and i can't do that i have to do it properly but in my experience of working with children, 
they don't always do it like that. They get as much pleasure from cheating in these books. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think it's just a degree of cheating. I mean, most people have cheated. I mean, I used to call it the five-finger bookmark. I used to see people on buses and trains with their fingers held in multiple pages, and they used to always make me smile. And uh, But that's fine. I mean, it's a bit like peeking around the corner, isn't it? It's not really cheating as such. I mean, some people don't don't accept the dice rolls that they make or the if they get killed in the adventure they'll go back a couple of pages it's it's saving you having to start from the beginning again sometimes so whatever works for the individual is is absolutely fine with me do you know when you've written say shadow of the giants that it is going to play through do because you know it so well yeah you have to get other people to read it and play it Yes, I had the help of a, a playtester I've known for many years who goes through it brutally and uh, makes sure we call it in video games like bug testing to make sure it's there is a one true way at least as a minimum to get through. And Steve also, I should mention, has written a book for the 40th anniversary, Secrets. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about that one as well then, Secrets about Steve's book, Secrets of Salomonis? Yes, I mean that's another area of of, um, of Valencia, and Steve tends to send people on lots of missions, and they're usually quite difficult. And and they, you come back, and he sends you on another one, and then another one. So, and then you finally find out what the secrets are, and then there's this character called the Shivering Man in the book. That's I'm, I've no idea. I think you'll have to read it to find out more. Mm. So you approach it in different ways. Well, we wrote the Warlock of Artop Mountain together the first one mm-hmm. 40 years ago and that we ended up finding out was a nightmare because i wrote the first half up to the river and steve wrote from the river onwards including the the maze that everyone got entangled in and it was very difficult to hand over a book which is multiple choice with lots of different things happening so it ended up being consistent as it as it went forward so i think we've over time we obviously we then had to write one each because there was suddenly a huge demand by from penguin at the time so our, our styles have probably evolved in a different way i think mm. Steve's reputation of having is more difficult than mine mm. oh, really interesting um so i can tell you that it's 40 years uh, since the publication of warlock of firetop mountain but in 1982 it's the year that i started teaching so i've also got a 40th uh, anniversary coming up and when I started, I think the Warlock of Firetop Mountain, I'm pretty sure, was in the old Puffin Book Club choice. And I noticed that it really enticed non-readers or, or at least children who would not voluntarily pick up a book and read it, really enticed them into reading. They were mainly boys. <laughs> But did you anticipate them as an audience or were you really writing for somebody else? I think originally we started off writing them for ourselves. We've been designing Dungeons & Dragons scenarios and this was an extension of that, albeit in a, in a solo format. So I think we were very much writing for ourselves, but it just so happened that the audience for this were children aged between 9 and 12 as a band and probably the sweet spot then was 11 it's actually quite a lot younger now since Scholastic had been publishing it gets kind of average age is, is 9 but um, when they came out it was quite interesting because there was an awful lot of negative press around the books because it had that word game in them 
Um, the Evangelical Alliance published an eight-page warning guide about them, saying, because you're interacting with ghouls and demons, you're bound to get possessed by the devil. There was uh, a vicar in, in Burton who was trying to tell the, his church audience that they were you know, the part of the satanic panic and and the local vicar wanted to chain himself to the gates of Penguin Books until they were banned, there were petitions sent in, until people started to read them and understand, actually, they were very good for reluctant readers, as you pointed out. And then over time, people realised that they were great for literacy. They improved literacy levels by 17%. Mm-hmm. They were great for critical thinking. They were great for decision-making. They were great for creative writing, great for encouraging people to to use art, great for problem-solving. And so these were kind of life skills being learned in book format and got a whole generation of children reading. Mm-hmm. Yet because they were called game books, they were somehow seen as trivial. Mm-hmm. I remember being on Saturday Superstore many, many years ago, and um, I was interviewed by John Craven. We were discussing the top 10 books in the charts, and I happened to have number one, two, and three. And we were talking from 10 to number one about what was good about them. And we got to my books, and this kind of overriding comments was, when are you going to write a proper book? And I'm saying, well, you know, children who are not reading are now enjoying these books, and they're empowering. They're giving them confidence about decision-making, and, and surely that's a good thing, no matter what format, whether it's a comic or an interactive book. If a child is reading, they are actually learning a life skill. Mm. So that should be, should be seen as a good thing. And so that that's that for all eventually died down, and, and then over time people recognised that an interactive book was is very good in, in multiple ways. And now they're using classrooms in many ways, getting children to create their own interactive adventures, mm-hmm. talking about the context of the environments that they're in, doing some encouragement to be creative writing, and 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 understand that gameplay is actually. A, a, quite a powerful tool for life skills. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I often have uh, a similar argument with people about joke books, which I think also uh, suffer from being viewed as trivial, but actually jokes are very complex things cognitively. Yeah. Um, and you, yeah, it's funny. It's almost as though if you're having fun, you can't possibly be learning. <laughs> exactly. But if you if you are critical of these, of games, just, just try and think, part your prejudice against and think cognitively what's happening mm-hmm. problem solving you can't get through a game without problem solving it's impossible you're learning intuitively you're allowed to fail in a safe environment you're not punished like you are in an exam for getting it wrong you just start over again you're encouraged to try again mm-hmm. and and games in the videos games world games like minecraft they're they're effectively digital lego they they are creative in multiple ways a child can learn in context that by applying the heat of a furnace to silica sand they can create glass and take that glass and put it in their environment and that that won't they won't forget that mm. even though it, it, that's learning by doing even though that it's digital doing it's still construction absolutely and, and i think that's really key to child's learning to have a contextual component to their learning rather than the broadcast model where you you hope they're going to remember what you say to them mm. Uh, just one more point, one more point about that. I think that had your sort of narrative structure um, and that sort of experimental structure being part of what was perceived as the literary world, it would have been revered as a new way of writing, you know, <laughs> and we'll probably have won prizes for it. 
Yeah, we shouldn't have called it a game. She just called it Fighting Fancy Books, and it might have been uh, greater acceptance. Anyway, but, it's it's done pretty well, so one can't complain. But I'm really interested as well in how both books and reading and games and gaming kind of expand out into you know the the real world, if you like. And I think there are now. Just as there are with Doctor Who, there are conventions, aren't there, on fighting fantasy and there are international gaming book days and all sorts of things. I mean, you probably didn't even envisage it was going to go in that direction. No, not at all. I mean, fighting fantasy has survived the test of time, like James Bond has survived the test of time in cinema. And we're absolutely humbled and so pleased by that, that something that was relevant in the early 80s is still relevant today and that children who read them back in the 80s have now got their own children and and, and ha- passing the bat on to them and they seem to it seems to resonate with generation z as much as it did to the children of the 80s and you can see why because everything generation z do is interactive the way they consume social media the way they communicate the way they operate their lives is pretty much interactive and if we can get children into bookshops and and reading books in the way they did in when they first came around in the 80s, I think that that would be a great thing because, as we all know, parents and teachers are concerned about the number of books that are, are being read or rather not being read these days. Mm. I did mention that way back in the 1980s that uh, the children that I observed reading the books at that time happened to be mainly boys. I don't want to make yeah. any assumptions about that. Do you actually find that actually the audience is expanding in the uh, Girls, boys, has that changed? Yeah, it absolutely has. Um, in video games in particular, there's a, a huge female audience now. Um, people of all ages, all genders will happily play games together when it was traditionally a, a male activity, as was, as you pointed out, finding fancy game books. But over time, you know, everybody seems to now enjoy uh, finding fancy game books. And we went to great pains and a great length in the 80s to make sure we didn't assume it was a male reader every paragraph does not assume that we we would all say hello adventure come in my friend it would never say a male character's name as the reader and we it was sometimes quite torturous trying to keep it assuming no no gender at all so we've talked a lot about the excellent qualities of gaming for learning but we've been talking really about out-of-school learning. And I wonder whether you think there are or there is potential for gaming in formal learning. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I've actually got my own school in Bournemouth, the Livingstone Academy Bournemouth, which is focused on digital creativity, collaboration, entrepreneurial skills, and using games as a contextual hub for learning and a lot of project-based work. I didn't do very well at school at all because I think visually and so the broadcast model of of somebody telling me facts, which I inevitably forgot and did poorly in exams, didn't work for me. So I thought it was important for two things, three things actually, that children should have a way of learning that was more about the application of knowledge rather than just knowledge for knowledge's sake. I think you should have a good arts education because if we are such a creative nation, which is admired around the world, we shouldn't strip creativity out of the curriculum. It seems to me that the arts doesn't count in the EBAT, therefore 
as far as league tables are concerned, it's a nice to have rather than an essential discipline. And last but not least, I thought it was really important for for literacy to include digital literacy as a, as as a, an essential discipline in the twenty first century. So I convinced um, the government uh, in twenty eleven to put computer science on the national curriculum. I wrote a review for Ed Vasey, the culture minister at the time, um, and we gave twenty recommendations. The main one being computer science and national curriculum because. ICT, as was taught at the time, was largely a hybrid of office skills. Kids were learning Word, PowerPoint, and Excel. They were being taught how to use other people's software, but had no insight how to create their own. What that meant, of course, they were effectively being taught how to read, but not how to write. And for the world that's being transformed by technology, for them to be operators in this world, these have to have an understanding of how code and programming works, even though they might not become programmers themselves. So computer science was brought into English schools as computing to replace ICT in 2014. And some wag said to me, well, that's all very well, but you need a flagship school (laughs) if you want to put into practice what you've been rabbiting on about for so long. So I set about the the daunting task of of opening a school and realised quite early on that I wasn't able to run my own school. So I was approached by the Aspirations Academies Trust and said, we'd love to run your school for you. So it was approved and um, it's a school open to anybody. And now it's open, opened last year. We had 150 places in year seven of 450 people applied. So it was massively oversubscribed and it seems to resonate well with the the parents and guardians and, and children in the area. I'm delighted that this coming cohort is also, also oversubscribed. But the, the, the thing is, we talked about earlier about learning should be fun, it should be collaborative. Children should be work-ready and world-ready, as well as having just facts, getting children to be digital operators, being able to work in teams, I think it's key for a world in which we're being dominated by robots, not for this intelligence, that creativity, which differentiates us from, from, from the robots, is an essential part of the curriculum and that critical thinking and problem solving too. So using games, again, as a contextual hub for learning. Because if you think about when you're flying across the next destination you go to, how your pilot learned to fly, would you prefer they learn by reading a book? How many degrees do I move the earlier on? or using simulation software, which is effectively a game, mm. and how games are used for training surgeons and uh, as well, without any dire consequences if they get it wrong. Mm. So there's a great learning tool to be had using gaming technology. But the last thing I want people to think is that, that children just playing games all day. It's using the principles of problem solving within games to deliver a curriculum that is more contextual, and hopefully children will have great exam results as a byproduct of a more involved and engaged learning experience well do you know i could talk to you for another 40 years but we don't have 40 years to chat i sincerely hope that fighting fantasy is still going in another 40 years time what a shame you and i won't be here to talk about it again but thank you so much for joining me in the reading corner my pleasure thank you very much indeed in the reading corner is presented by nikki gamble and produced by alison hughes This episode is generously sponsored by Scholastic Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner 
on your favourite podcast platform.